Well, good evening, Blue Ridge. It's great to be with you all. My name is Brian Loritz, and uh, along with my wife, Corey, of 21 years and our three teenage boys, we just moved all the way across the country from the Bible Belt of the San Francisco Bay Area uh, to here uh, in the Triangle, and it's just our joy to lock arms with you and to serve and to team with what God is already doing in this part of the world and, um, and absolutely beyond. Uh, already, uh, there's been about six people who've come up to me th uh, this evening and just said, wow, a live preacher. We're not used to that. So um, I am, uh, I'll take that as a compliment. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, please meet me in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, Pastor J.D. and I will be uh, sharing out of this same passage uh, this weekend. And uh, just wanted to park here as we continue on uh, in our series in which we're just digging into this whole idea of what it looks like for us to be stewards. We are stewards. We're, we don't own. We steward. God entrusts things to us. and We want to be faithful managers of that. A part of what this looks like practically, and you'll hear some more about this as we get into it, is our first campaign that we started two years ago uh, in which we want to put God first practically in our time, our treasure, and our talent. Uh, but in general, all that we have comes from the Lord. We, again, are not owners, but we are managers. And one of the things that he calls us to steward is found right here in this text, and I'm so excited to be able to unpack it with you. So pick me up, Luke chapter 7, verse 36. It says this, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, speaking of Jesus, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, uh, take note of this, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them. My wife would be grossed out right about now with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. This is, this is a touch of uh, uh, sarcastic irony. He's saying to himself if he was a prophet, and now in verse 40, Jesus is going to kind of respond to what he said to himself in secret, thus proving he is a prophet. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. Verse 41, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to, to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. 
And those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Parenthetically, they are offended by this. And, and what they're pretty much saying is you can't forgive sins, only God can do that. And Jesus, in so many words, is like, that's exactly the point. This is proof positive that Jesus is not just a good man, good teacher, or even a prophet. He is God in the flesh. Verse 50, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, Father, would you speak to us from this beautiful passage? Would you speak to us? Would you challenge us? Would you encourage us? Take center stage this evening, Lord God. May we be in awe of you. May we leave here inspired to be better stewards of those things you have entrusted to us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I had 5,000 books in my library, and um, we were living in Memphis at the time, and then God had called us to move uh, uh, to the Upper West Side of, um, of, of Manhattan, New York City, to a little 900-square-foot apartment, all right? And so my wife is looking at my 5,000 books, and she told me, tell your friends goodbye, they're not coming with you. Now, of those 5,000 books, there were only three books outside of the Bible that I would just return to again and again to just read and reread. And one of those books is a book that I had read back in the 90s when it came out. It's Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace? What's so amazing about grace? If you haven't read it, I commend it to you. It was voted one of the top 50 books of the 20th century. Uh, this book, What's So Amazing About Grace, it, I just remember I, I, I read it at a very strategic, impressionable point in my journey of faith. It really gripped my heart in deeply transformative ways. Uh, it, right from the beginning, uh, he tells this story of, of this prostitute. Um, who had figured out that she could make more money uh, by recruiting her underage daughter into the business, uh, that this daughter of hers could make more money in one night than her mother could in a whole week. So get the picture. Mama recruiting her underage daughter to join in the business with her. One evening, mother and daughter are out uh, soliciting, and in the middle of all this, uh, uh, several Christians come up to the mother, and they begin to share the love of Christ with her, and, and, and ultimately, they invite her to church, and, and I'll never forget what Philip Yancey says was her response. This woman looks at these Christians who had just invited her to church. She said, church, church, why would I ever go there? They would only make me feel worse than I already do. What she's point putting her finger on is, is a sad truth. And that is so many churches have been poor stewards of the grace of God. I think part of the reason why this resonated with me is um, it's kind of my story growing up. Uh, the church I grew up in, I want to be careful not to throw them under the bus. It was filled with very well-intentioned, well-meaning uh, people who were trying to live their faith in the way of Jesus. Um, but, but for all their good intentions, they got grace wrong. 
Now, I, I grew up in the 80s, and I know this is a bit of a disconnect, a young African-American kid in the 80s who actually had hair back then. Um, and so back then, it was in the African-American community in the 80s, that was the decade of the aerodynamic haircuts. You know, we had ramps going on, we had boxes, high top fades, the whole nine, going to the barber shop. You had to give these detailed instructions. Like, I remember one time telling the barber, I want this part to go that way, this part to go that way. Now here I am 20, 30 years later, just, just happy to be holding on to something. Um, and, and so here we are, that's kind of the decade. And I remember our pastor in this little black church that I grew up in, uh, he was so offended by the way we would wear our hair, he would actually work it into some of his, his sermons, and not in a very complimentary way, he, he would just make us feel worldly and less than for how we had our hair cut. At the same time, again, back in the 80s, uh, hip-hop is kind of spreading its wings and, and taking a grip on the culture, and uh, there's a group of youth in our church who are on fire for Christ, and the only way they could really express that was, um, was through, was through hip-hop, and so, um, you know, they decided to change the lyrics and make them into Christian lyrics, and, and I remember one Sunday, the pastor catching wind of this, and he got up, just kind of extemporaneously preached a sermon against the evils of hip-hop and said, even though we've changed the lyrics, it is still demonic, and he refused to allow that in his church. And just right then, it's like someone took a bucket of water and just, and just doused it on the passion of these youth. Parenthetically, the, um, that pastor, uh, he wouldn't appreciate me now. My, my friend Lecrae just reached out to me and worked me into one of his latest songs called Ten Toes. I don't even know what that means, but I'm like, yeah, okay, go ahead and take whatever you need to take uh, from one of my sermons. But, but this was the environment that I grew up in. Later on from there, I went to a Bible college that, that got grace wrong. Again, well-intentioned people, but they just got grace wrong. In fact, true story. Uh, I remember having, uh, having lunch with one of my classmates, and um, she was really upset because there was this Christian artist who had the audacity to sing what was then called secular music. And, um, and I asked her what was wrong, and so she's talking about this Christian artist who's singing secular music, and she literally said, because we all know you can't take the crossover when you cross over. Christians say the corniest stuff in the world. But this is the idea. And so I just, just want to paint a picture for you that unfortunately so many Christians in so many churches have been just horrible stewards of grace. And yet at the end of the day, I want you to understand, you may be here this evening, you don't know Christ or maybe new to the faith, that the bedrock of Christianity is not founded on our performance or on our moral strivings. The bedrock of Christianity is founded on the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I remember C.S. Lewis. The story is told of the time in which C.S. Lewis walked into a room in which people were bantering back and, and forth, having a heated argument about what makes Christianity distinct from all the other world religions. And C.S. Lewis just jumped in there and said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. We don't have to perform. In fact, we cannot perform into the kingdom of God. But praise God, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin hath left a crimson stain, but he's washed it white as snow. 
Boy, if I was in a chocolate church, someone would say amen right off down through there. But that's okay. We're just getting to, getting to know each other. That's fine. It's all grace. Now, here's a question on the table I want to explore to you, and then we'll get to the text and just lift up three quick thoughts and go about our evening. Why is this so hard for Christians to just rest in grace? Why is it so hard for us to remember that the same thing that got us into the kingdom, grace, is the same thing that keeps us in the kingdom, grace? I think the reason why it's so hard is that you and I have grown up in and are being discipled by what I call the culture of meritocracy. Meritocracy pretty much says that my identity is in my performance. A few years ago, I stood in front of a group of about 100 NFL players, and I was talking to them about grace. And one of the things I said to them was, I said, the sad thing about you all, and I'm looking out on this crowd, the sad thing about you all is that, is that your whole identity from the time you were a little guy was found in the stat sheet. Who you are and your value, you think it's wrapped up and tied up in how many tackles you had, how many yards you rushed for, how many yards you threw for, how many interceptions you had. That determines whether or not you get recruited into a college. That then determines whether or not you got drafted. That then determines whether or not you, you get the big contract. It's your stat sheet. And yet, Blue Ridge, I want to tell you, it's not just NFL players or athletes who wrestle with that. All of us do. For so many of us, our identity is in our report cards. It's in my GPA. So if I can just perform, 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 I'm getting to the right college. You get into the college, if I can just perform, 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 that'll get me into the right grad school. You get into the grad school, if I can just perform, 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 that'll get me the right career. And then you get into that career and you realize, I've got to keep performing in order to keep my job, keep performing in order to make the raises and the promotions. It's the treadmill of life. You never get off of it, and you are wearied and worn out by the treadmill of meritocracy. It's in the middle of the meritocracy that the kingdom of God sets up shop and shakes its fist in the middle of the meritocracy and says that the kingdom of heaven turns things upside down. The kingdom of heaven has the audacity to say, there are no report cards. You are not identified and valued by your GPA or where you live or the moral choices you've made. Who you are is a sinner saved by grace. If there's one word I want you to write in the notes app or in the margins of your Bible that canvases all of Luke 7, 36 to 50, it is the word grace. There was a great London preacher uh, back in the 19th century, he pastored a church called the Metro Metropolitan Tabernacle. His, his name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon loved our text, our story so much, he preached five different sermons on this one passage. Not that he preached five times the same sermon, he preached five different sermons. Why? Look at it with me on the screen. Spurgeon says, grace the most costly of spikenard, this story, speaking of our story, literally drips with it. Like those oriental trees which bleed perfume, 
grace. The gentle dew of heaven is here plenteously distilled and falls like small rain upon the tender herb. Grace, sovereign, distinguishing, omnipotent, is exceedingly magnified in the narrative. Lo, I see it extended upon a glorious high throne with the king's daughter waiting as an honorable woman among its courtiers. Here's Spurgeon. If you were to ask him, what is the secret to the effectiveness of your church? He would point to the boiler room where they would pray. But Spurgeon would also say the secret to the effectiveness of our church is we preach grace. The reason why so many people are getting saved here is the beauty of grace. The reason why our baptismal is filled, it is grace. And likewise, Summit, may we never get so sophisticated in our theology that, that we're not moved by the profound doctrine of grace. The effectiveness of our church, the, effective, the effectiveness of your life and mine is wrapped up, tied up, and tangled up in how you and I steward grace. Now, what does that look like? What does it look like to be a faithful steward of grace? Our text is going to show us three quick things. When we come to Luke chapter 7, Jesus is in a town called Nain. This is where he has been hanging out. In Luke chapter 7, verse 34, uh, Jesus kind of lets slip what his, reputa- what his reputation is. Jesus says, here's what I'm known for. I'm, I- I'm known as being the friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus says, I have a well-deserved reputation for hanging out with folk that that the world has bypassed. That's me. And here we are in verse 36. Jesus gets invited over to the home of a guy simply known as Simon the Pharisee. The fact that he's a Pharisee tells us he is a religious leader. Now, now I I want us to be careful with Simon. Don't be so quick to put a villain hat on Simon. Honestly, as the story opens up, I honestly think that Simon doesn't know what to really make of Jesus. He's invited Jesus to his house. Um, He's not uh, trying to get into any kind of a theological argument with him. He's not trying to trip him up as some religious leaders do. Uh, He affectionately refers to him as a teacher or or as a rabbi. Later on in the story, we understand that, that Simon was under the impression that Jesus was a prophet. So I really want us to give Simon a pass initially because he doesn't quite know what to do with Jesus. William Barclay, the scholar, says that, that when you had a rabbi as a guest in your home, typically, uh, if, if your home was set up this way, uh, the meal would take place in a very public place like a courtyard so that people could come both invited and uninvited to glean pearls of wisdom from this rabbi or teacher. Such is the case because there's an individual who pops up that I'm quite sure was not found on the guest list. It is a woman who is simply known as a sinner. Scholars tell us, they're all agreed, that that this description of a woman being called a sinner no doubt means she's a prostitute. She's a woman of the night. Now I want you to understand that Back then, more than likely, if you were in this woman's profession, you were probably at some point married. In Jesus' day, there was no such thing as women divorcing men. 
It's a very patriarchal society. Men held all the cards. And at any given point, a man could divorce his wife, and here she is instantaneously cut off from financial security. And so now trying to figure out how do I eke out a living, the average woman would go into the world's oldest profession. We don't know if this is the case with her, if she had been divorced. What we do know, to a certain degree of certainty, that women who had found themselves in that profession had either been divorced or abused by men. She had had horrific experiences with men. And now here she is, eking out a living by relating to men in demeaning ways. Reading between the lines in our text, we understand with a certain high degree of probability, that this woman had met Jesus prior to this dinner. Everything about her actions is expressing gratitude for something she had already received previously to this dinner. And what is she expressing gratitude for? Grace. She comes in, and everything about her is... You can tell this is her first time around a preacher, or first time, I should say, in church. Because she does things the wrong way. She wipes his feet with her hair. Back then, women did not wear their hair loosed in public. That was a huge cultural no-no. She's rubbing and kissing and anointing his feet. Some would say that's kind of gross, but, but that is a very sensual and suggestive act. And what is Jesus doing? He just goes on eating his hummus. Like nothing's happened. And Simon is clearly offended. <laughs> Simon kind of gives his, his version of preacher, pastor, do you not see what's going on? What's clear is, is that this woman has received grace. And this grace has made her feel at home. Jesus hasn't given her judgment. He hasn't given her condemnation. He simply welcomed her with grace. How do you know you're stewarding grace well? How do we as a church know we're stewarding grace well? Sinners are welcomed. They're welcomed. I spent the last four years, as I shared with you, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and um, our, our dearest friends there was a lesbian couple. In fact, we, we were just on the phone with them the other day. Dear, dear friends of ours, um, we spent many, many, many hours together. They'd be over our house for a meal. Uh, many times we got invited over to their house, uh, several of those times. Uh, it was for, for parties, and honestly, we'd walk in and uh, from the looks of things, it felt like we were the only heterosexual people uh, in the room. God bless my youngest son. I remember uh, my youngest son can't whisper to save his life. And uh, we, were, um, we were at one of these parties. He was about 14 at the time. And, uh, you know, it's just wall to wall, you know, people in that lifestyle. And we're sitting on the sofa, people all around us. And my youngest turns to me and goes, are you uncomfortable? I'm like, shh, shh. And yet, over time, just all these meals and logging all these hours together and laughter and good food and good drink, I was able to lead their son to faith in Jesus Christ. And 
over time, they started coming to our church. See, here's the principle. More times than not, people will not hear truth until they first feel grace. More times than not, people will not hear truth until they first feel grace. See, John, when he first saw Jesus, this is what he said in John chapter 1, I saw a man full, Greek word pleroma, used of a pregnant woman in her third trimester, show enough pregnant, full with baby. He said, that's the word. I saw a man third trimestered with grace and truth. I think there's something to that order. Not full of truth and grace, but full of grace and truth. Hear me, in this text, Jesus is going to say truth to this woman. He's going to say some very hard things to her. He's going to call what she's been doing sin. Not issues, not dysfunction, sin. But before he gets to truth, she first feels grace. How are you doing with that? People in your life aren't position papers. They're people made in the image of God. And like you and me, born into sin. May we steward grace well. May sinners feel welcomed around us. What does it look like to steward grace well? Well, sinners feel welcome, but there's something else. Here's Simon. He's taking in this scene. He's, he's described as being a Pharisee, and you need to know that the word Pharisee simply means the separated ones. The Pharisees were a religious group that kind of prided themselves um, and had, a, had an inflated view of themselves. Uh, they would look at people like this woman and say, we're not them. Those are those people. We're separate from them. We're morally pure. They were pompous, arrogant, self-righteous people. And, and we catch a whiff of this in this text. Simon is looking at this woman as if she's an insect. She, he's completely annoyed by her. And here's the irony. The irony, Jesus points out later, is that Simon had failed his job as the host. You know the job of a host was back then? It was to greet the distinguished guests with a kiss. Jesus says, I came into your house, you gave me no kiss. Not only that, it was the host's job to make sure that his distinguished guests had his feet washed. Jesus says, I came into your house, you didn't wash my feet. So here is Simon being self-righteous, but, but he's, he's a hypocrite. He hadn't even fulfilled his moral obligations as the host. And what's more, this woman is not only doing his job, he, she's actually going above and beyond what he was supposed to do. He kisses her, she kisses his feet. She anoints them with oil. She has an alabaster jar of perfume. In the Greek, that means Chanel number no. five. She's going above and beyond Parenthetically, that's what grace does. When you've really encountered grace, grace makes you go beyond. Grace doesn't stop at the bare minimum. 
Grace doesn't just go, let me give my 10%, I'm done. Grace says, it doesn't just say, let me just come to church and, and worship. No, grace goes beyond, 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 beyond. And we see that with this woman. So, so Jesus picks up on Simon's self-righteousness. And he says, Simon, let me tell you a little story. Two individuals were in debt. One owed 500 denarii, Jesus says. The other owed 50. Now, let's not get caught up in the amounts. That's a part of it. But notice what Jesus says, neither one of them could pay. Do you not get what he's saying? The one who owed 50, we can draw a straight line from the 50 denarii person to Simon, the Pharisee. Very moral. And the one who owed 500, we could draw a straight line from the 500 to this woman who's a prostitute. Who cares about the amounts? Neither one of them could pay. Don't you see what Jesus is saying? On the continuum of things, all right, Simon, she scored a 38 on the test. You scored a 45. You both failed. Think Simon's not offended by that? How do I know I'm stewarding grace well? Sinners are welcomed. Secondly, the self-righteous is offended. The self-righteous is offended. Some years ago, I read the autobiography of Gandhi. And in this autobiography, Gandhi talks of the time in which a group of Christians were trying to share their faith with him. They were trying to proselytize him. They gave him a Bible and encouraged him to read it. <laughs> Parenthetically, I love what Gandhi said. He goes, you know, I got this Bible and I actually read it. Uh, but he goes, the first two books, I moved through that pretty quick. And then I got to Leviticus and I could barely keep my eyes open. And then Gandhi gets to the New Testament. You know what Gandhi says about the New Testament? Gandhi said the thought that I would need someone to die in my place is offensive to me. I could not accept that. Now, I'm nobody's judge. But if we just go off of Gandhi's words in which he says, I have rejected the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine Gandhi may very well be in hell? On the flip side, there's a notorious serial killer in American history by the name of Jeffrey Dahmer. Now, if there's such things as a hierarchy of sin, Jeffrey Dahmer is at the top. I mean, he did all the big ones. Here's a guy who murdered individuals and ate them, along with some other horrific things. But the story is told that when Jeffrey Dahmer gets to jail, he has a legit conversion experience. He gets baptized. Now again, I'm nobody's judge, but let's say that's legit. Will you just look at the juxtaposition? It's very possible that loincloth-wearing, fasting-all-the-time Gandhi is spending an eternity in hell and murdering, cannibalizing Jeffrey Dahmer could be your roommate in heaven. I told this story once at a church I was pastoring, and later on that afternoon, I got a, I got a very long and blistering email from one of our parishioners. 
She says, I'm just so offended. I can't believe you would say that about Gandhi. And if you ever share that story again, I'm going to leave. She was offended. Why? Because she had been hardwired into this whole thing of moralism. That I make good choices. I do good things. And somehow, I can get my way into heaven. Well, if you could, why do you need a savior? See, if I understand it right, Jesus' blood is for prostitutes and virgins. For the irreligious and the religious. As one pastor says, grace insults our sensibilities. How do I know I'm stewarding grace well? Sinners feel welcomed and self-righteous. They feel offended. Let's go home on this one. How do I know I'm stewarding grace well? Jesus is central. The key character in this text, it's not the prostitute. The key character in this text, it's not Simon the Pharisee. The key character in this text is Jesus. You don't have to spend a day in seminary to figure this out. What absolutely blows my mind is when Jesus is central, just the eclectic crowd that gathers. The religious and the irreligious are, 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 are flocking to Jesus. They're in the same room because Jesus is in the house. He, he is central. That's why Jesus would say, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. People from every walk of life will be, will be drawn to Jesus. And here's Jesus. Again, he tells this story. And please notice with me one of the things he, he says. In verse 41, he says, A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Verse 42, when they could not pay, pay attention to this word, he canceled, he canceled, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? So here's the question, what happens when Jesus is central? Number one, there's forgiveness of sins. Neither of these individuals could pay, and their debt gets canceled. In an eerily similar passage, Paul says this in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Will you look at it with me? Paul writes, and you, that's speaking to all of us, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Here it is, by canceling, there's that word again, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What is the record of debt? The closest equivalent is what we would today call a credit report. It lists all of our outstanding bills. And here is Jesus on the cross. It says that he canceled the record of debt. Paul is writing in a language called Greek. And the Greek word for canceled, the closest idea we have in today's modern society, it is the idea of expunged. And when a criminal has his record expunged, what happens? It is cleared as if it never happened. And when it gets cleared as if it never happened, that criminal has the full rights of citizenship restored back to them. Friends, when we came to Jesus, we were in debt. But because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, 
not our good choices, not our moral strivings, but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, our, our debt was expunged, it was cleared, and now we've been given the full rights of citizenship, being able to commune with the God of the universe. Finally, what happens when Jesus is central? Yeah, there's forgiveness of sins, but there's also restoration. Verse 50, our story ends by Jesus saying, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Scholar Joel Green says that word for peace doesn't just mean inner tranquility, it means to be restored to a state of wholeness. Jesus is saying go in peace, the implication is, woman, you've been made right with God. You and God now can fellowship with one another because Jesus Christ had forgiven her of her sins. But there's more. Not only is she restored to the God of the universe, but when he says go in peace, he's restoring her to society. Not as a prostitute, but as a woman made in the image of God. Joel Green says the reason why our text ends the way it does, it's a bit of a cliffhanger, is because the question is meant to be asked, how will society receive her? Will they receive her kind of with that proverbial scarlet letter and not let her get past her reputation of her past? Will they receive her as one who's been touched by Jesus, made whole? Summit, isn't that our question? How, we, how will we receive those individuals who have made an absolute mess of their lives, been strung out on drugs or made a series of bad choices or whatever it may be? Will we see them as individuals who are branded by their past? Or will we, be, will we receive them as individuals who have been saved by the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? That's why as we, in this time, again, we've been talking to you about this whole idea of first. It's really this idea of generosity. And we've talked, Pastor J.D., especially last week, just kind of laid out some ways in which that money that you've given to our first campaign has been used and, you know, land has been purchased and some campuses have been built. But here's what I want you to understand. It's not about the land. It's not about the bricks and mortar. Your gifts have allowed us to extend our gospel reach so that we can reach more people like the people found in our text. I was gripped just this week of a story of a woman who who was a part of Summit. I won't use her real name. We'll just call her Mary. Mary had just the bottom had fallen out. She was strung out on drugs and to support her habit, like this woman in our text, she had She had turned to prostitution. She stumbled her way into a recovery center, and and it just so happened the person who was mentoring her was a woman who was a part of our church. What this woman said to her was, listen, you trying harder is not going to cut it. You actually need a spiritual base. Mary said to this woman, what does this base look like? 
And this woman shared with her the good news of Jesus Christ. She stewarded grace well and pointed her to a Savior. Would you know it? Mary said, I've never met a man in my life who accepted me as is and who loved me as is. And Mary said yes to Jesus and got baptized in our church. That's stewarding grace well. That's what your gifts go to. It's not about the bricks and mortar. It's about extending our reach so that we could reach more Marys, Marks, and Matthews right here in the Raleigh-Durham area and beyond. So, Father, we thank you. Many of us in this room have, have been touched by your grace. By very definition, we don't deserve it. But we receive it. Lord, there's probably some people in this room who, who have not received your grace. Maybe there's some Simons in this room who, who grew up very religious. Maybe even grew up in church and went to vacation Bible schools. Maybe even served on missions trips. But the truth be told, they've never received your grace. Lord God, would you, would you by your spirit do a work, Lord God, of challenge and conviction? Would you save? Maybe there's people on the other extreme here. They wouldn't call themselves religious, maybe irreligious. And maybe they're here this evening and they need to hear that what C.S. Lewis said is true. What distinguishes Christianity from all of the world religions, it's grace. So, Father God, we take great pleasure that you know everything about us. All the things we've ever done, are doing, and will ever do to break your heart, and yet you still say, I want you. My grace is sufficient for you. Lord, may we never get so grown in our faith that we cease to be wowed by your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.